Schneider. Everybody, welcome back to the Chabert Show. Pretty excited for our next guest, who I've known, I think, about over, God, probably over twelve plus years. Greg Dean, thanks for coming on the Chabert Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, who is Greg Dean? <laughs> yeah, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> However much you want. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still working a little bit on that myself, but <laughs> yeah. So, I'm a tech entrepreneur. I grew up in the Northeast. Went to school in the South. Studied engineering and just kind of been fascinated by technology my my whole life career and you know i guess where i met you in the bay area spent you know a decade and a half kind of working on technology startups for with and kind of in that area and now kind of doing that in a little bit different kind of remote first capacity now and just kind of my passion is building you know cool products and always excited to talk about technology in general that's awesome. So where are you originally from? You said Northeast. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Augusta, Maine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how did someone from Augusta, Maine get into tech? Um, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I was trying to think, you know, was there a, a specific formative moment of my childhood? And I think that I think my dad was an engineer and uh, okay. that kind of had a sort of probably somewhat of a predisposition towards engineering and technology. But we got a family computer when I was young and I was just kind of constantly geeked out about like trying to get games to run on it, not necessarily even playing the game, just trying, just, just basically oh, cool. like, you know, tinkering with the computer. And I, so I think kind of was exposed to technology at a really early age, was kind of lucky in that manner. And I'd say that mm -hmm. that probably butterfly effect later, you know, ended up with me spending a significant portion of my adult life in the Bay Area. You said you studied engineering, where did you go to college? I went to Virginia Tech. Okay. Like Virginia Tech's actually pretty solid uh, program engineering wise. And then when did you decide at some point from you know graduating to say, I'm going to make the trek? Did you actually work right out of college out in the East, East Coast, South? Yeah, so actually, I, good question. I met, so I was really fortunate to meet this group of people that were working at this company called Meridium in Roanoke, Virginia. And I was, I spent some time working at, they're a software company. I spent okay. some time working for them during school and then immediately after school was working for them and had always wanted to, you know, just kind of love the idea of, you know, being able to build something from scratch for, you know, using software as a, you know, business model is obviously, a, you know, has its kind of, you know, exciting economics around it as well. So I think I had, you know, worked with them maybe a couple of years in school and then after school for a few months and just kind of realized I, that the time was basically the time in your life where you can take risks like I did. And I ended up just moving across the country with a good, good mutual friend of ours, actually, you know, Saroos. Mm -hmm. uh, and you guys had a cool road trip uh, to yeah. come to the Valley. <laughs> yeah. We just gave away everything we had, got a U-Haul and just drove. We were like, we're going to go to Silicon Valley. Just kind of our greatest strength was our own ignorance about like what we were doing, you know, because <laughs> I think yeah, yeah. had we tried to plan it and, you know, get a job or it would have been an impediment to probably ever, it ever happening. So I would highly recommend anybody out there who's on the fence of, you know, kind <laughs> of, especially at that age, like just pull the trigger if you have that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, I mean, you definitely, it has a very American spirit or like, all right, let's just go all in. Let's move to, 
you know, the Bay Area, let's go to Silicon Valley. I think, you know, if you look at the history of the U.S., it's to a certain extent, it's still pretty much like focused on hubs, I call it. Like almost like airlines had a hub and spoke. You fly in and United to Chicago or Dallas for like American. You know, like in tech, it's Silicon Valley, entertainment, L.A., finance, New York, Detroit, automobiles, energy, like Houston, right? Now, I think uh, you, you mentioned like, you know, people work from wherever. I wonder if that like dynamic will be changed. I have noticed people talk about like, is San Francisco coming back or not? Since literally the pandemic, there's a massive younger crowd here who are looking to get into like tech than it was before. So it has a little reminiscence of like, I call it the golden era when we were in tech uh, mm. in the 2010s. I don't know at what point. I think it's like obviously focused on AI and certain things. But so you came to Silicon Valley. Did you, you know, work for a company? What happened next? Did you start your own company? So we, again, I think we didn't really plan it. So that's why I say our okay. greatest strength was sort of just like, the willingness to try it. So we, I think we woefully underestimated how expensive the Bay Area was. So we were <laughs> just, you know, just graduate more or less just graduated from college. So we had, you know, our first jobs, we were both studied engineering. And so we had good jobs and we were able to save a little bit of money. But, you know, the, the Bay Area when you're early 20s is, is a pretty daunting kind of place to, to try to break into, at least it was for us. And so we ended up sort of both getting what I would say is like, you know, they were kind of jobs to fund our own startup ambitions. So I ended up working in like the back office at a municipal bond company. Oh, wow. it was a very building. Actually, it's a baller office. But, you know, I worked with some great people there, but it was, wasn't really my passion, but it enabled me to kind of sort of bootstrap my own ideas and, um, you know, kind of get integrated into the tech scene and meet people, which is kind of the key unlock that you need. That's incredible. What was the startup you were working on at that point? We were working on a photo. Uh, it was a photo sharing platform called Shuffle. And the idea was sort of like an application specific Dropbox where you'd, mm-hmm. you know, you'd kind of install a piece of software on your computer and it would back up all your photos in the cloud. But then we tried to provide a really rich kind of Google photo like experience where we would build it, you know, do facial recognition, allow you to share quickly, print, and do all these cool things. We never really got it off the ground, but it was, I mean, it was a tremendous, tremendous learning lesson and just like humility and like, you know, just very, very fortunate to have gone through that with Sarus because I think it was a just a transformative experience for both of us to try to get that off the ground. Well, that's great that you actually had to turn into like a learnings. Did you at that point say, all right, like, uh, Let's go start your own thing, join a bigger company, get some like backing financial, or did you actually join a bigger, like a growing startup? Yeah, I joined, I joined a startup. So I went from Shuffle to, I joined a, a startup called Social Shield. Oh, yeah. This was um, started by a guy named, well, I think originally the impetus was from a guy named Russ Fraden, who went on to do a lot of other great things. And this is one of his kind of companies he started and, and you know, a, a Rod Rustin-Poor and Noah Kindler. Mm-hmm were the sort of kind of operational co-founders. So worked with them kind of as the lead engineer. And that was my first experience at a venture-backed startup. You know, Shuffle was sort of bootstrapped and then kind of exposed to venture-backed. But what's Social Shield for people who don't know much yeah. about it? Um, yeah. So yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd be surprised if people knew a ton about it, but good point. <laughs> yeah, so basically the idea was, you know, social media was blowing up. That's right. And you know, a lot of things that you kind of look at and take for granted now are, are, weren't 
like in place. So like it was kind of like the wild, wild west. Remember you had like Foursquare and we're checking in and people were oversharing and security wasn't very, you know, people had access to information they probably shouldn't have access to. And so our view, our thinking was that the kind of next frontier of sort of, you know, kind of risk and uh, I guess like think about how like antivirus was the kind of backstop against, you know, bad actors and for in like the PC world and the internet and for social media, we wanted to build the equivalent. Yeah. So we wanted to protect your children online basically, but also, yeah. you know, provide some guardrails about what was safe and what wasn't safe in the kind of the new frontier of social media or social networking. Yeah. So that makes sense. I mean, the name was like social shield, you know, like a, a security platform for social yeah. media, especially in the heyday, like, what was it? This is like the end of 2010s, early 20, you know, yeah. end of 2000s, early 2010, when there was growing social media at that point, right? Especially Facebook and you mentioned four squared and of those likes. Yeah. And the mobile apps were starting with their you know products. So like there was like cross connection between the desktop to the web and mobile. Cool. And then, you know, what happened to social shield? How long were you there for? Yeah, we we were there a couple of years and eventually that company was acquired by a German antivirus company who kind of unsurprisingly saw, you know, kind of shared the same narrative, same vision of, you know, how antivirus is kind of the uh, the way of the past and this solution would be the kind of the new way that people protect themselves in kind of the the world of technology and social networking. It was really cool, you know, like it's hard to like map directly onto the world today because it was just such a it was such a new thing, but like something as simple as like cyber bullying, right? Like was like a brand mm. new phenomenon that like the world really wasn't prepared to deal with. And so we would get letters from parents actually who would, you know, thanking us for like detecting, you know, we'd use machine learning to detect different patterns on social networks and we would kind of flag like suicidal behavior and whatnot. And we, we would wow. get, we'd get like actual written letters from parents saying, you know, Hey, like I had no idea that my son or daughter was experiencing this type of trauma online. Uh, yeah. people just weren't well educated about it. Right. It's just kind of, and you know, it's still an issue, not saying it's not an issue today, but I think like the generation, sure. it's kind of, everybody's matured a little bit and is a little bit more aware of it. So it was a really cool product. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, you know, we were acquired fortunately by, uh, like I said, a German antivirus company in Vera. And I ended up working there for a while after the acquisition. That's awesome. And then did you, at that point, you go into like start another company after Avira? Yeah. I mean, I've just kind of, it's always been like serial wanted to start and, or be involved at a really, really early stage. So awesome. kind, of, kind of, you know, serially doing that, I guess. And uh, I started a company called Exit Round with a good friend of mine, Jacob Mullins. I can, you know Jacob as well. It's funny, all these names. I, I, it kind of goes without saying that Chabert and I probably, you know, know at least uh, in some sort of mutual capacity. Yeah, uh, pretty fortunate. And, and uh, like I said, we've lived in a, a nice kind of golden era of, uh, you know, tech in, in uh, you know, that time in San Francisco. So for yeah, sure. it's, yeah. it's phenomenal to see what everybody's doing. So you're doing uh, Exit Round. Can you tell everybody what, what that company was yeah. all about? Yeah. So there was this idea around, this was around, what was this, like 2013, 2014 maybe? Yeah, nine, 10 years ago. Wow, time flies. Yeah. This was basically around, there was this phenomenon happening around, around. I mean, it's always, it's always kind of there, but kind of was kind of topically relevant at that time where 
there was a lot of seed funding going on in the Bay Area, and there just wasn't the there wasn't the magnitude of sort of Series A f- capital that there there kind of was, in, I would say over the last the last decade. But and so there was this notion of something called like, what was referred to as the Series A crunch, which was basically a lot of seed funded companies would fail to raise Series A's. And what Exit Round was a basically an opportunity to try to provide sort of an off ramp or sort of a think of it as like liquidity in a way that takes advantage of the accomplishments of that these teams had made in yeah. terms of you know either building a great product or building a great team because you know at the same time there was kind of this dearth of of engineering talent and so the idea was to build a platform that created liquidity in that part of the ecosystem. So some of the companies that weren't going to continue to raise venture money could find homes in some of the later stage growth companies. That was the basic idea. And it actually worked really well. It was just kind of, think of it as like a um, sort of a a technology powered investment bank where, you know, we would do- Like corp death, basically. Yeah. So basically taking care of your exits when you're probably like a lot of these founding teams were like engineer product oriented, don't have that skill set. Uh, yep. It's either fundraising yeah. or sell. Exactly. And so that was cool. We worked in that for, for, you know, three, three or four years, I guess, two or three years. And we sold on the platform, you know, north of a hundred plus companies. We had like an $80 million acquisition and, and, you know, it provided a, a pretty valuable service mm-hmm. of kind of matchmaking and liquidity in the ecosystem. There's a company now that has kind of taken over that, that sort of niche called Micro Acquire, I believe is the name. And they kind of picked up where we left off. And so it just wasn't really, you know, Jake and I, it was more of a lifestyle business than it was a, a pure technology play. So it had a little bit of a fixed upside in that respect. And so I think the lesson I took away from Exit Round was, you know, you can build a great company. Not everything has to be a technology company. And that was a, you know, a, a really good, sort of services business that um, was never going to be a tech company, but that's okay. And I went on to, from exit round to, you know, I think every entrepreneur probably has in between these social shields and exit rounds and shuffle and, you know, the stuff I'm doing now, there's probably, you know, like a half a dozen kind of little experiments that you try that don't work that aren't, you know, (laughs) you know, that, you know, we tried Things with I don't know if you remember eighty twenty mob which right like there was there's yeah. like there's just a graveyard of like things that never got escape velocity and they're not try, even worth try things fail yeah. fast move on almost like a you know like a, I almost call it like a you know like your own little lab or accelerator incubator for your own products right which is cool how many of these is that you kind of try like test and you know, oh, moved on or countless countless oh really. Yeah, I mean, and, and then when did you, you know, when did like the the product that you're at, which is uh, Hot Streak Fantasy Sports, when did that yeah. come into fruition out of that all those tests? Yeah, I mean, so it's hard to even reverse engineer how I got through. Well, I guess uh, I mean this is really interesting because and this is a bit of a transition. Obviously, there's the entrepreneurial side, and I'm yeah. a big fan of like describing because everybody who's listening into the you know Shabir Show, we have Greg Dean here. And I want them to better understand the industry and the business and how, what are you doing? Because fantasy sports is a phenomenon. Like it's become, I, when I was trying to track this, I was trying to figure out like, is it 24 billion? Is it 9 billion? And there's estimations of up to like 78 to 100 billion in the next seven to 10 years. 
which is yeah. pretty incredible growth. So can you explain what fantasy sports is to those who don't know about it or just yeah. in general? Yeah, for sure. So that's what I'm working on now is um, a fantasy sports product called Hot Streak. And fantasy sports in general is essentially a, an ex- exemption from the basically uh, some federal laws that prevent prevented gambling. And there's an exemption in the, it's called the, the UGEA. It's the Unlawful Gaming Act, uh, uh, butchering the acronym, but it basically allows under certain circumstances to do competitions that are kind of, I guess, like gambling adjacent, but not gambling directly. But the real industry kind of was ignited in 2018 when the federal, the Supreme Court repealed PASPA, which was the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act. And that's what federally restricted sports betting in general in the U.S. with few exceptions. So Hmm. there was this kind of Cambrian explosion in 2018 around anything sports betting related, including DFS, kind of a resurgence of DFS. Which is DFS for those who don't know? Yeah, so for those who don't know, DFS is daily fantasy sports. So that's kind of a, a, rather than doing like season long, which you may think of like a traditional fantasy sports competition, Daily fantasy sports are competitions that end and begin and end on the same day. So you're not like drafting a team and managing it over the course of the season. You may be drafting a team or making uh, that, day, know, that day, huh? That, that day, yeah. yeah. So, so fantasy sports to me, and sorry to interrupt, like, so I started when I was in high school, like with like Yahoo. Uh, this is like 20 yeah. plus years ago. And fantasy sports to me is like you take your favorite players from the leagues you like and try to compile them into a team and you face them off against other of your friends and peers who compiled their team. So like, like for example, if I'm drafting this year, I had an NBA team. I thought it was pretty confident, but like with injuries, it didn't do well, but I had like Giannis and Kwai and a few others. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to do well. And, and I didn't, but like the, the general concept is like Giannis and Kwai don't play on the same team. They're on my fantasy team, but then I could have like different leagues. And so like the, you know, the general sense is like this, like that's why it's called, it's like the fantasy land. I'm, I'm assuming like of like having these superstar players you have them and you draft them and you're part of your team. And it's been a, a crazy phenomenon. I mean, in the last, what was it? Uh, within the last 10 years, there was that uh, show. Was it the league that just was like, like yeah. really entertaining and funny? And it was all based on fantasy sports and football. And even athletes from the NFL it came on that show a couple of times. So it's definitely an interesting you know market and space. And it's growing. Like the, the fact that it's becoming legalized now, as you mentioned, is like a, a whole nother level. So what, like, can you explain a little bit, like, you know, when did you start Hot Streak, Hot Streak, excuse me, uh, and like, you know, tell me a little bit, like, like, what are you trying to solve here as part of the product? Is yeah. it a consumer so, product? I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it all kind of starts around this PASPA, uh, repeal of PASPA. So again, so PASPA is the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act. That was repealed in 2018, kind of opening up this kind of future opportunity where you have, you know, sports betting being legalized in the world's largest economy, right? So like that's kind Mm. of really, really old and kind of, you know, well understood product market fit. But like all of a sudden kind of this opportunity or this federal law is kind of removed, creating a lot of opportunity for people. So we saw that and, you know, wanted to contribute to that basically market as it matured over the, you know, over the, the future. And so what we do at Hot Streak is we, we specialize in something called micro markets. And, you know, just as I was mentioning that there's kind of season long fantasy and there's DFS, which is kind of daily fantasy. 
we build extraordinarily short versions, hence the word micro fantasy. And so to give you an example, you can make picks on our platform that span three minutes in an NBA game. Whoa. Uh, yeah. So, and we do drive based NFL competitions and we do kind of individual at bats. And so wow. our thesis was that there's kind of this general trend moving towards immediate gratification. I mean, not just recently, but just immediate gratification and kind of shortening attention spans in general. Mm-hmm. When you think about how consumers consume content, things like TikTok and sure. whatnot, even in sports, like, you know, people are watching red zone, people are watching the fourth quarter only, or people are watching the highlights. And, and so yeah. boiling everything down into bite-sized pieces of consumable content is the kind of the, the goal of micro markets which is the kind of underlying technology that Hot Streak builds. And we use, you know, we do a lot of, you know, pretty heavy machine learning and we build neural networks to price all this stuff in real time. So we, we, we license data from the leagues in real, and price all this stuff in real time. So you can, you can, like I said, make a three-minute selection, you know, three-minute pick in an NBA game. Or, uh, so it's like on the polar ag- extreme of like season long, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's good timing and it's definitely a smart concept. I mean, the, the social media is like you mentioned, TikTok, which actually kind of pans back to like Vine was the original one that had like sh- really short form content videos. And then when Twitter acquired and deprecated that, Instagram did like a tic- I mean, a Snapchat, excuse me, Snapchat did stories, Instagram copied, TikTok came out and did basically the same thing Vine did. And then on the like, I'm in the mobile gaming world. There's the hyper casual games, which literally you could play like five seconds to a minute long, and you're just satisfied playing like a silly game that's a ball rolling game that shows ads. And those are have done incredible in the last five years. So you're doing this as like in fantasy sports, and the fact that you could do it like in you know micro games is really interesting. How did you get to, like you're a startup, and then you got the basically the leagues rights to do this? Have the leagues kind of cater to startups a lot better now for licensing? Because I remember back in the day when I was you know, working in the likes of Pebble and others, they were expecting a huge amount of front fees and things. And I was like, well, this just doesn't make sense right now for us to kind of co-brand the watch with like an NFL league or team. So we kind of passed. But like, you know, how does someone like you who relies on this industry do that? Do you just raise a lot of you know, venture capital money to do that? Or do you actually kind of work a business model? Or is that no, confidential? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's no, there's no like secret. I mean, we do have great venture partners, and you know, we have. How much did you guys raise? Out of curiosity, we've raised about nine million dollars in total. Congrats! Uh, yeah, thank you. And you know, but most of that is almost none of that is doing you know anything too exotic in terms of buying rights or anything like that. I mean, we buy the official data from the you know, official sanctioned data providers that the leagues, you know, mm. the leagues want you to work with. And sure. um, you know, we try to be a good player in the ecosystem. And, you know, I think I, I can't comment on the sentiment of the leagues, obviously, but I, I think that in, my guess is that my understanding is that, you know, they see the opportunity just like we do to have a flourishing kind of ecosystem of, you know, consumer products that fans can engage with. And so, you know, letting that kind of, ecosystem flourish is sort of in their best interest as it is the consumers and ours. So we're, awesome. uh, yeah, we're very fortunate to have the opportunity we have. And, you know, I think, like I said, I think that there's no secret, but it's a lot of, a lot of, um, it helps a lot if you use the official stuff. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And that was like the thing I was like, uh, it's good that you have been able to progressively obviously focus on it in your product. And speaking of your company and again, congrats on the 9 million, how many people, you know, work with you? Are you guys, 
remote or you have like a headquarters? And then like, what is the core product? Is it mobile? Is it web? Is it uh, like, where can consumers go right now and play your product? Yeah. I mean, you can check us out at hotstreak.gg. We're in the app, both the Google Play and Apple App Store. And we also have a web version. Um, So we're on all three platforms. We're, you know, we're we're about 12 people, fully remote. We have, since the pandemic, kind of fully embraced just the opportunity to work remote. It's been a, you know, it hasn't been without its challenges. It's not, um, you know, it's not a cure-all. But I I will say that, like, coming from the industry or coming from the time when, you know, you're trying to recruit engineers and, and product people and, like, you know, the Bay Area or even Southern California or, or any kind of major metropolitan area, there's a there's kind of a when you restrict your geography like that, it's it's very difficult for a startup to hire. So being full remote's been great. We have people at work and you know, probably of the twelve people we have, probably that's probably spans five to six different states. So yeah, we um we've tried to take full full I think what's gonna happen There'll be some industries where like remote stuff works and there'll be some industries where it doesn't work. And I, you know, I think that everybody will figure that out and kind of the, the hybrid model. Yeah. And so we're doing that right now and that's worked well for us. That's good. And yeah. And then can you explain a little bit more about the industry, right? I mean, in the last several years, what I've seen is like FanDuel, you know, like Bet, Bet MGM, these are, that's more of a classic brand that's come into right. this space of like, uh, so there's like the sports the sports brands, and then there's obviously the traditional brands. Can you explain a little bit about the industry, both on the fantasy sports slash you know gambling market? Yeah. How big are they? Who are like the bigger players? And then like again, how do you guys fit in? And what do you see yourselves in the next couple of years with that? Yeah, that's super good point. So I think or a super good question. So you know I think that there's two big players that that if you're going to talk about. You know, I'm talking about the U.S. market, which is the market I'm yeah. most familiar with. Essentially, FanDuel and DraftKings are the the two. Yep. You know, they're you know come their pedigrees from the traditional season long. You mentioned Yahoo, but like FanDuel and DraftKings kind of pioneered that model, and the, so they have you know enormous resources and and mm-hmm. um, you know teams, great capable people. But I think that they're they're kind of at a point in their and I think this is probably true a lot for the industry in general is there's a lot of companies that are like marketing companies, you know, where they're, the product has more or less been commoditized and they're competing on, you know, who can bonus the best, you know, who can provide the best incentives for users to sign up and bonuses and whatnot. And so I think that there's a little bit of like the, at the top, you kind of have like these marketing companies that, that, you know, maybe they're, they're executionally great, but they're, I don't think they're, you know, necessarily building a lot of great new innovative technology, which is what we're trying to do. So, you know, we spend very little, if not nothing on, you know, almost nothing on marketing. We spend most, almost all of our time working on product and engineering and data science problems and building technology that we think will provide a, an advantage in the medium to long term. So, so what are some viral loops? Sorry to interrupt. Like that, that, speaking of like tech and product, what are some viral loops that you guys see is like, okay, this is, I mean, you were talking about specific business-wise, the micro markets, yeah. you know, that, that those products seem very intriguing and they cater to like the here and now community and the younger generation too. But yeah, I am, I am curious, like what are some like ta- stuff that you could share publicly that's very unique to you guys? Yeah, I think that the real thing is not, I think the thing that really makes us unique is 
less, you know, a specific feature or, you know, even less just specifically micro markets, it's more of a strategy of vertical integration where we think that owning the technology and the relationship with the user and being able to iterate on that tightly is a competitive advantage. And so if you were to kind of dig, kind of peel back the the layers of some of the competition and look how it's put together, a lot of the tech and underlying components are sort of outsourced or, you know, done by other people. Um, so what we're trying to do is build, you know, a completely vertically integrated sports gaming experience for the end users. So that just allows us to build, you know, we have build tighter interfaces, think about UX more, more empathetic, you know, with empathy. And, and so that's really what our key focus is. And micro markets is just one dimension of that. We also build our, like, a lot of other really cool pieces of technology underneath the hood. But, but I think the key is vertical integration for us is a big unlock when it comes to kind of differentiated user experience. It's awesome. Uh, I guess a few other of a time, like a few other interesting questions I have. One is like, you're, you're obviously in an interesting time with like the startup world. Right. Mm -hmm. um, as far as like the markets, they've been kind of fixing themselves as far as like starting a company valuations, raising capital. You are all, however, in a very hot space, as I mentioned earlier, like it's an industry that's going to be potentially like 100 billion in the next seven to 10 years, which is yep. pretty incredible. Like that's like at least a four or five X increase of the overall market now with different players than just the ones we were talking about. So, you know, how do you see that, you know, like, uh, pluses, challenges, you know, things that you could, you've dealt with in the last year or so. And then, you know, like the, the, obviously the positives of this space of being a startup in it. Yeah. So I think it's a really hot industry kind of explosive opportunity. And like I said, sports betting in the world's largest economy kind of greenfield opportunity in like 2020 is a pretty big opportunity for startups and for everybody. I think that like, I mean, you mentioned a couple of different things there, but I, I think that like, the capital markets in general for startups is a pretty bad, it's a pretty bad time right now. There's not, you know, you know, interest rates are high and typically ventures kind of doesn't fare so well in that environment. True. So I think that as high as it is, it's still very difficult. You know, we were fortunate to, you know, have some great capital partners that we raised our series A last spring and which kind of tees us up for a really good, you know, really good, I think like 24 plus month kind of opportunity here where I think that what's going to happen in general for startups, is going to be the next, I think the next 18, I think that the next 18 months are going to be tough. And whether it's sports betting or, you know, don't, but the only thing I think that is like kind of maybe has enough excitement to kind of escape that might be like early stage AI and stuff like that. You might be able to have, you know, sort of uh, access to capital might not be as difficult. So I think that, you know, in general, I think I'm answering your question, but I think that sports betting is really hot, but like the, you know, early stage capital for startups is still a really tricky business to be in. Yeah, it is. And I was just curious because like uh, sometimes like it's the hype uh, in the last, like at the hype train, I call it. Like right now you mentioned AI, obviously AI is, in, you know, just exploding since ChatGPT like went public with like its consumer-based products in my opinion. And before that, in the last couple of years, the uh, crypto NFT metaverse gaming was like the key products. And, you know, we could go keep going backwards of what like was hot, but like, yeah, I think this, 
it's an interesting time to, you know, I think to scale a company, it's going to be difficult very early stage uh, yeah. to like, kind of ramp up. Speaking of exit round based products. So, and then the other, like, I guess a few things is like, you know, your the product is cool. Like, and what do you see now and in the future for Hot Streak and the overall market in the next, like, like the, I guess the rest of this year and the, the future? Yeah. So I think like, I mean, we're looking to probably 10x in the next year. I mean, we're seeing explosive growth and, wow. and you know, we're making money as a startup. Congratulations. That's, that's, yeah. that's a huge accomplishment for like actually generating revenue stream. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it really is. And it's, it's exciting and fun to talk about. It and also happens to be like, you know, kind of the actual underlying goal for business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I think the next year we'll probably, you know, and I don't want to get too specific about numbers, but I, I think no like looking at like a, a, a 10x of what where we are now and right now is, you know, we're touch and go to being a profitable company, right? From a month to month, you know, we're pretty close a lot of months to being kind of break even, which is amazing. a really exciting place for us because it allows, you know, we're small, we're lean, we're growing. And, you know, I, I think that the future's bright for us and that I'm pretty excited that with the team that we have and the, and as I said, That's great exciting. capital partners behind us, we have a, a really bright future. And what excites you in general about the future? Like besides like your company, obviously, anything else like industry-wise? Uh, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm super excited about some of the tooling getting even better for starting companies and starting projects in general. I think if you look at sort of over our lifetime, the cost to start, you know, a small technology company, a small tech startup has probably gone, you know, it's gone from the, you know, measured in probably five to 10 million to 50 to hundred thousand dollars. And I think it's going to continue to get even cheaper with some of the, you know, some of the stuff that's happening with AI. And I think that this is going to be, you know, such an interesting period of just innovation and growth because of that, where, you know, even just some of the demos you see of people gluing stuff together with chat GPT in the back is just staggering to think of like how much capital would have been written, how many people would have been required to build some of this stuff. And so, I'm really looking forward to just innovation in general, the cost of innovation getting cheaper. And, you know, I think it's, that's great for consumers. It's great for humanity. It's great for everybody. So I think that in the macro sense that like, I'm the most excited about that in the future. That's, uh, that's been exciting. Well, it's been, speaking of exciting, it's been great and exciting to have you on the Chabert show, Greg Dean. Yeah. Uh, CEO of Hot Street Fantasy Sports. Thanks so much. I hope everybody who was listening in enjoyed it and uh, appreciate it again, Greg. All right, cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.